My name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm one of the pastors here at Courtright, and it is my privilege to be with you this morning for the reading and the preaching of God's Word as we continue in uh, our on-again, off-again Founders of the Faith series. It's been one of those things where when we have one of uh, one of us, meaning Allison, Howard, or I, uh, preaching, we have been continuing on with the series. But when we bring in guests, we're not necessarily asking them to write a whole new sermon for us. So um, that's just why it's been a little bit on again, off again. So I would venture to guess that if we get a little retrospective on our lives that we could pinpoint a few defining moments in our lives. Whether you are here and you've been around for 80 years or maybe not quite 18 years, you've been faced with decisions and challenges that have in one way or another defined who you are in some meaningful way. For me, I can think of a couple key moments in my life. I think back to my early 20s, those formative years where, I don't know about you, but I didn't quite feel like an adult, but you also don't quite feel like a kid. You're just starting to figure yourself out. You know, I think about my dating life and the maturity of my faith or the lack thereof, my vocational life. All of those things kind of felt like they were in flux. I was exploring at that point a call into ministry, but I was dating someone who at the time did not have any real interest in being in a ministry family. All the while, I was also really wrestling with certain aspects of my faith. There was a moment of decision for me. What kind of person did I want to be on the other side of this? The result was a breakup and a commitment to ministry and eventually a rekindling of a high school romance with my high school sweetheart who broke my heart into a million pieces. Um, And she's sitting over there right now. And uh, (laughs) my wife, Lindsay, who uh, was uniquely uniquely gifted for ministry life. She comes from many generations of uh, ministry families and church ministry, and she was also uniquely designed to deal with me. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I I redeemed it. I redeemed it. You know, it's it's a running joke where I I, um, lament about how she just crushed my heart into pieces in high school, and, you know, she rolls her eyes every time. The other formative moments for me was in my late 20s, um, where I finally came to terms with some of the childhood trauma that I had been through, and I realized the deep impact that it was having on my mental and spiritual well-being. And this got me on a, a journey of mental and spiritual wellness through therapy and recovery. That was a defining time in my life where I had the choice where I could be complacent and just sort of coast or I can pursue the wholeness that I believe that God had for me. Sometimes, now to be very clear, sometimes we don't always emerge from these defining moments looking good. Um, there are times when we make significant errors in those defining moments, and I have made some of those as well, and I'm sure some of you could recite some of those moments as well. Whether for better or for worse, what are your defining moments? I bet if you've been around any length of time, you could think of at least a few. Today, as we continue in Jacob's story, we are going to encounter one of Jacob's defining moments. 
Now, to catch us up a little bit, um, Jacob and his twin brother Esau, they were born to Rebekah and Isaac. Jacob was a bit of a homebody. He was a mama's boy. And Esau, on the other hand, he was this wild beast of a man. He was hairy and manly. He was kind of this archetypical alpha male, if such a thing actually exists. Jacob was also a trickster. He coerced this manly brother. He coerced him into handing over his birthright for a bowl of stew. He took advantage of his aged and blind father, Isaac, by pretending to be his brother Esau to receive his father's blessing. And Esau, understandably so, was not happy about this to the point that he makes plans to kill Jacob. So now Jacob is on the run. He's heading back to where his ancestors came from in Paddan Aram to his uncle Laban, the brother of Rebekah. So he's on the run from the brother who wants to kill him, and he's heading to Paddan Aram, and on the way there, we have this important defining moment for Jacob. Before we read, though, let me just pray for us. Gracious God, help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, and that in understanding we may believe, in believing that we may follow in faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So Genesis 28, starting at verse 10 through to the end. So Jacob left Beersheba and sent out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to do. When Jacob awoke, from his sleep, he thought, surely the, the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and all of that that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the word of the Lord. So Jacob is out here in the wilderness. He's all on his own. He's vulnerable to the elements. He's vulnerable to hungry, wild creatures who might be looking for an easy target. And even 
of his brother who might be on the hunt for him. And yet he pulls up a rock as a pillow. Um, I'm grateful for modern technology and my, my current pillow. Um, and he falls asleep and has this strange dream, probably not because of the pillow. Um, he has this strange dream of these angels, these messengers from God ascending and descending to and from heaven. And God speaks to him in this dream in a similar but yet slightly different way compared to the way that he spoke to his grandfather, Abraham. And he wakes up and he immediately attributes this dream to having an encounter with the living God. And he says this key line, he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He notices something significant happened here. This is that defining moment for Jacob as a young man. To the best of our understanding, Jacob has had, up to this point, no meaningful, real relationship with God. He's had no meaningful connection to God. In fact, the only time thus far that Jacob has mentioned God is as he is lying, bald-faced lie, to his father as he is trying to steal his older brother's birth, uh, his blessing. He has shown himself to be dishonorable and a deceitful schemer. And that way of life doesn't just fade away overnight, but it's clear that God is starting to grab a hold of his life. He's starting to pay attention. He's becoming aware to the realities of God. Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. But now he's becoming aware. He is slowly but surely growing. Have you ever had moments in your life where God's presence was evident in retrospect, but in the moment you were like, I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize God, what God was protecting me from or what God was showing me in that moment. Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. So he sets up an altar to the Lord and he does a little bit of bargaining with himself and with God and he carries on his way to his relatives in Paddan Aram. Now, there's three parts of this story I want to examine briefly. And they just kind of fall in line with what you might expect. There's Jacob's dream, there's Jacob's response, and then there's our response. So Jacob's dream. What precisely does this dream mean? It's, it's a little bit weird. And you read through some commentaries, and they all seem a little bit uncertain themselves what it means. They all have different thoughts and different interpretations, as you might expect when it comes to a metaphorical dream of sorts. So I want us to consider what is most clear about this dream and what is most important about this dream, even though some of the particulars might be up for debate. These stairs are something akin to a Mesopotamian ziggurat. And you'll see that on, a screen, on the screen here. Um, is it there? The picture? There we go. Um, now imagine that, but like times a thousand, you know, like just ascending through the clouds, right? It was a temple designed to be sort of a channel between heaven and earth. This part kind of reminds me a little bit of Babel all the way back earlier in Genesis, where a tower was built to reach the heavens, to ascend to the heights of God. But in this case, it's sort of like a reversal of Babel because God descends to earth to the point where Jacob awakes and he's certain God was here. I know it. 
And the angels are the messengers. They are the messengers of God, the ones who kind of go back and forth. They, they ascend and descend from the earth and heaven, heralding the truth that God is among his people. What Jacob experiences is a moment of God's space intersecting with our space, a moment in heaven of heaven and earth connecting. It's a way of Jacob knowing that he was not alone, that this God that he is learning about does not keep a barrier between the creator and the created. The Lord has access to Jacob, and Jacob also has access to the Lord. Jacob's dream is ultimately a type of proto-gospel. This is good news, what happens here. There is traffic happening between heaven and earth. It's accessible. There is access to God. There is a two-way street happening here. This is good news. And then as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the culmination of what Jacob experienced in this dream, that the seeds of incarnation were planted all the way back in Genesis and have now come to fruition in Jesus to the point where Jesus actually references this exact story at the end of John chapter one, where he says to Nathaniel, he says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, meaning the Son of Man is now on earth with God's people. God has come to earth. What Jacob is seeing and experiencing here is no small thing. Like this is, this is significant. But it's not just the visual of the stairway that's important. It's what God says to him that's critically important. Let's just review that. He says... I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, this is pretty standard stuff. We've heard God say something quite similar to Abraham. There's promise of land. There's promise of innumerable offspring, and there's a promise that this family will become a family of blessing, a conduit of blessing. But this next little bit kind of breaks the trend of what, we, what, we, what we've seen God say to his forefathers. It implies a much greater intimacy and connection compared to Abraham. In verse 15, he says, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, God says. Think about it for a moment. Think about Jacob's current situation here. Jacob is in an extreme place of vulnerability here on this journey. He's essentially exiled from his family. He's on the run. And he has assumed that he was alone and abandoned. He's also royally messed up. He's caused all sorts of discord within his family. He's lied and he's deceived his way through life thus far. And herein lies a little bit of a miracle unto itself that gives me a little hope for my own life and hopefully you a little hope for your life. Um, in the words of Walter Brueggemann, he says this, the miracle is the way the sovereign God binds himself to this treacherous figure. That's so true. 
that this guy who's been a liar and a deceiver for the bulk of his life, God binds himself to him in this way that it's like, why, why him? Why him? And I think we can turn that toward ourselves and say, why me? Why would God use me? And it's like, well, God is in the business of using messed up people. Amen? <laughs> Even though Jacob did not anticipate it, God was with him. Jacob left free, fleeing from his brother's ire and his wrath without a sense of purpose or promise. And the Lord speaks to him here. The Lord speaks an alternative reality over his life. I am with you, he says. This is the purpose of God giving him, um, this is the purpose of God giving him this dream. Heaven and earth are intersecting. I'm with you. God has access to Jacob. Jacob has access to God. God's presence is being made known to Jacob in a profound way. I am with you. So God's presence is made known. And then he says, I will watch over you. Some translations will say, for some version of, I will keep you. The first promise is about presence, and the second promise is about protection. It's actionable. God will protect him from his brothers, from his brother and the other dangers around him. God not only goes with him, but promises his safety on the way. And then finally, God promises that he will return to this land that was promised to him, the land that he was currently fleeing from. This is a very real and immediate concern for Jacob. He's heading all the way back. He's going all the way back to the beginning where his ancestors originally came from. But God promises that this is not the end, that he will return. This feels not only like a confirmation of what God promised Abraham all the way those many years ago, but it links all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, they are exiled out of the garden without a way to go back to where they were coming from. It's like God is promising this amazing homecoming. And there's Jacob's response. Jacob experiences God in this dream, but he responds to God in his wakefulness. And in his response, he does three things. He sets up an altar to God. He makes a bit of a bargain with God, which we'll unpack. It's kind of interesting. And he promises to give back a portion. And this is the weird part. He promises to give back a portion of what God has given him, a tithe, and his first remark is the beautiful line that we've already mentioned a couple of times. Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. But even in this, we can sort of see the immaturity of his faith. But he is slowly but surely becoming more and more attuned to God's presence around him. He, he now has, he's had this significant encounter with the God of his ancestors and it, it has woken him up a little bit. It, it has stirred him a little bit. This is in many ways the moment of decision for Jacob. What kind of man will he be? Will he continue to be this deceiver of a man, this usurper of the birthright and the blessing, this supplanter of power? Or instead, will, be, will he become someone who yields to God, who honors God with his life, who seeks to live out the will of God? And again, Jacob doesn't necessarily become a saint after this. He, you know, he doesn't automatically become some wise sage. But this is a moment of repentance where he receives and takes to heart the good news that God is near to him. 
So he sets up this altar. That's his initial response. He sets up this altar. He takes the rock that he slept on. There was nothing intrinsically special about the rock, but it was, it's, it's a symbol. It's a reminder of what God had done for him. He takes the rock that he slept on and he sets it up as a pillar and he anoints it with some oil and he calls it Bethel or Bethel, the house of God. This was not a new practice. We had seen Abraham do some, some similar things. And it's likely that this was a common practice among other religions in the ancient Near East. Um, it was meant to designate this particular place as significant and holy. But it's interesting that in his immaturity, he still defaults toward kind of a, a religious practice rather than going for a lived experience. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with what he does here. It's just interesting to notice his response. And he does this again in the last couple of verses when he offers God a tithe, a tenth of what God gives him. He promises to give, to give back to God. This is the first time a tithe is ever mentioned in the scriptures. But if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense. Where is he giving back to? The practices of the Israelites are hundreds of years away from being codified. There is no Levitical priest to support or structure to give a portion of their, their tithe back to the poor. There's no sacrificial system put in place. So where and how is he planning to live out this tithe? Jacob seems to have intuited this practice from other local religious systems. God didn't ask him of this. He just offered it. I think that's a good thing. I think there, there is a kernel of good in what he's doing there, where he's saying, like, God, you, if you give me what you said you're going to give me, I want to give back to you. Like, that's a good thing. But it's just interesting the way that he's going about it here. Well, this is no doubt a turning point for Jacob, that moment, this, is the, this moment of decision that we've talked about, he still seems to be in this mode of bargaining with God. If you'll notice, he kind of hedges his bets a little bit. Yeah, at the very end of the section, if you go back to verse, so I'm going backwards here. If you go to verse 20, the first word that Jacob says in that paragraph, what is that word? If, if, if God will be with me and do all of these things, if God does this, if God does that, then I'll do this. Then, then I will call this God my God. He's kind of hedging his bet a little bit. And if God does all those things, then I will give a tenth back. It's interesting. So he kind of bargains with God. He offers back this tithe if God holds up to his end of the bargain. Like us, Jacob contains multitudes. There seems to be this mixture of both sincerity and deceit all in one. But this much is true. God has been bound to Jacob ever since he was in his mother's womb when it was declared by God that the older will serve the younger, the younger being Jacob. And though imperfectly, Jacob is also now bound to God. I always wrestle with these characters because my tendency, and I think it's a tendency across the board, it's to kind of idealize or even idolize these founders of the faith. And yet, frequently, they show themselves over and over again to not be worthy of our adulation. And that kind of feels like the point sometimes. I'm not meant to look at Jacob as a model for my life. Thank goodness. 
but I might still see bits of my life in Jacob. I have been a deceiver. I have attempted to selfishly bargain with God. I have at times ignored God. I have defaulted to mindless religious practices rather than truly experiencing God. And I am not going to speak for all of you here, but I have a feeling that I'm not alone. Okay, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but... And yet we are reminded of the purpose of Jacob's dream here, that though we have sinned against God and against others, God has created a way for us to know and be known by him. God has shown his great love for us by committing himself to us, by binding himself with us through covenant. In the same way that God promises his presence and protection to Jacob, I believe he offers that promise to us. Consider Psalm 23, where David famously says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Presence. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Protection. Presence and protection. Even for a deceiver like Jacob. Even for deceivers like us. God is good and God is faithful. So what is our response? What is our response? There may be a moment of decision here for us as well. A moment where we trace God's covenantal faithfulness to us and decide to pour it back as faithfulness to him. Um, Allison earlier was mentioning about this uh, celebration that happened last night for Champion Life Center's 10th year anniversary here. Um, The other, uh, yeah, it was... I couldn't believe this room. If you were here last night, it was like, it was bumping. Like it was, I have never seen this room so alive. No offense. Um, Like it was wild. Um, And it was just such a, a beautiful picture of them responding to God's faithfulness. We're pouring back what God, God has been faithful to us and we are pouring that back to him. And that's what they did so well last night. Their response, and I believe our response to God's faithfulness starts with praise. That's what Jacob does as well. You know, when, when he exclaims, he says, how awesome is this place? He recognizes that something holy happened here. And he's like, I I just need to praise God for this. How awesome is this place? And then he marks the moment with a pillar. He has marked this place as a place where God met with him. And he will remember that moment for all of his days. Praise is a beautiful and right response to God's covenantal faithfulness and promises to us. Praise, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through words, whether it's through song, all of these shape our hearts toward God. They attune ourselves with the Holy Spirit's presence in a way that other practices just don't do. In many ways, praise is the starting point in our response to God. In many ways, praise is all that we can bring, tangibly speaking, What else can we bring to God that God doesn't already have? The earth is the Lord and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
So we might say that Jacob's promise to God, this little bargain that he makes, is ultimately kind of futile. And yet there's something significant for us to consider in terms of offering back to God what God has so richly blessed us with. This is the heart of God's covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be this conduit of blessing to God and those around us, to live with a spirit of love and graciousness and gratitude and charity for those around us, to leave an imprint on the world for the better and not for the worse. That is at the heart of this Abrahamic covenant, that we are to be conduits of blessing to those around us. And that is a response to God's faithfulness to us. When we consider all that God has done, we respond with our lives. We can trust God with it. God has shown himself to be trustworthy. We can know that God's presence and protection go with us wherever we go. This covenantal promise goes even deeper when we consider Jesus who opened the floodgates of heaven and declared that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was now on earth, that this barrier between God's space and our space was growing ever thinner. And we see God's willingness to reconcile us to him all the way to the cross of Christ, where Jesus laid down his life for us that we might truly live ourselves, amen? When we consider all of this, when we consider all of this, we trace back the story of God's faithfulness to us all the way back to the beginning of Genesis from Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all the way to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. What else can our response possibly be other than the entirety of our lives, wholly submitted to God. In the beautiful words of Isaac Watts, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up and lead us in a song of, of reflection and contemplation before we receive communion. And I just encourage you in, the, in this next moment to just sit with some of these realities, to sit with who God is, his faithfulness to us, and our response.